Well, I, it's been almost 30 years, but I still remember a situation that happened, one of the most painful situations that happened to me uh, when I was a kid. You see, when I grew up, my parents, they were both big cooks, uh, and they knew how to cook well as we grew up in the South, and they fed me well. And so one of the blessings about having parents that could cook very well is they taught me at a young age. And so my mother, I remember her teaching me how to use the stove early on. I think I was about seven years old, and I knew how to use the stove. I knew how to work it. Uh, I'd come home, and I'd make me a little meal in the stove, and it was great. And she gave me simple instructions to make sure that I was on the right track and make sure that I didn't hurt myself. And she would tell me that you need to set the temperature. And once you set the temperature to whatever you set it to, you wait till you hear a beep. And once you hear that beep, then you know the oven is ready to go. Right, and then you, whatever you're cooking, depending on what you're cooking, you need to set that timer. And once you set that timer, you'll hear a beep. And once that beep goes off on the timer, then that means your food is ready to go. And she gave me a, a, a warning, a very vivid warning that I remember is the oven's hot. Right? It, it's hot. Don't play around with the oven. So as you put stuff in, as you take stuff out, understand that this oven is very hot. So one day I, I was coming home from school and uh, I got home and I wanted to cook me something in the oven, and I had done this before, and I don't know what happened that day, but my mind was a little frazzled, and I was all over the place. Whatever a seven-year-old can be busy with, I was busy with that, and my mind was focused on that. And so I turned on the oven like I normally do. I set the temperature to 425, and I went off and did, did my thing. And as I came back, I looked at the oven, and one thing that would always let me know that the oven was doing this job is the heating element that was at the bottom, that baking coil that turns orange and means that it's red hot. Uh, it was doing its job. But when I looked at the oven, I don't specifically remember, but I, I opened up the oven, and you would have thought I, I felt just this burst of heat. I don't know if I felt that or if I looked past it, but the coil at the bottom wasn't orange. So in my mind... Something was wrong. And in my seven-year-old mind, instead of just trusting the system, I decided to grab it. Guess what? It was on. All 425 degrees of it was on. Ended up burning my hand because I decided to grab the heating coil. Well, it wasn't that my mother didn't give me instructions. You see, the instructions that she laid out was very clear. She gave me everything that I needed in order to do the job that was in front of me, and that was baking something. But you see, something that came across during that time, it didn't quite look right to me because I was used to seeing this coil be orange. Something didn't look right, so it caused me to doubt what was actually happening. And when I doubted what was actually happening, I took it upon myself to do what I felt like I needed to do to figure it out, and that was grab it. And obviously, I paid a painful price for that. But as you think about our Christian life, throughout our Christian life, God gives us exactly what we need in order to do things according to his will. But oftentimes, you and I, we doubt. We doubt what God has laid out because it doesn't appear to be, it doesn't, it doesn't match what we think it should match. It doesn't look like how we think it should look. And so we either do something different than what God has laid in front of us, or we don't do anything at all. We just doubt and we remain in our doubt. And what we need to understand is that at the end of the day, we all have doubts. 
It's going to happen. We're all going to have doubts. We're all going to have skepticism about things that go on in the Christian life. But the doubt is not the big issue. The big question is, what do you do in response to the doubt that you have in your life? When doubt comes up, when you become skeptical of something that God has put in front of you, how do you respond to it? What action do you take? Because really what we'll look through tonight is that there's really three, three responses that you can have to doubt. Either you can remain in your doubt, you can just sit there and do nothing and remain in that, that, that skeptic phase, that, that doubt phase that you have, or you can, be, you can disobey. You can be disobedient and go against the doubt that you have and completely reject whatever's in front of you and do things your way. Or you can believe. You can believe and trust what God has placed in front of you and know that whatever it looks like on the surface, as long as we've prayed about it, as long as it lines up with Scripture, as long as it is according to God's will, we can trust and know that God has a plan and a purpose behind this. And if we pursue this, then we too will be sanctified. We too will grow even if it doesn't fit what we think it should look like. And so as we open up our passage tonight, and you can go ahead and turn there, John 20, verse 24 through 31, we see all three of these phases of doubt. And what's so great about this passage is we end with the phase that we all should end with as Christians. We get to a point where we recognize God for who he is, Lord and Savior, and God of all creation of our life. And we see that with Thomas and his phases that he goes through with doubt. So let's go ahead and open up to John 20, verse 24, and read this passage for tonight. John 20, 20, 24 says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, one thing I want to do before we jump into this passage is I think we all need to make sure that we have a right understanding of Thomas. Because Thomas is somebody, I think, out of anybody in Scripture that we look like, he's the one that gets reviled the most. He's the one that gets talked about the most. He's the one that has a description of him that I don't think is entirely accurate. 
in that description is, what do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And it's because he had one mishap in his life that we know about, one major mishap that has cast a name upon him that I don't think is, is necessarily accurate, and we need to get a proper understanding of why he got the name Doubting Thomas and really what his life was all about. And when I think about one mishap, you know, plaguing somebody's entire life and you never can, can recover from that, it made me think about some athletes. And if you're familiar with, with sports, you know Chris Webber is one of them, right? Chris Webber had a Hall of Fame career, but no matter what he did in the NBA, it always went back to college. It always went back to the national championship game when he did what? Called timeout. He called timeout when they didn't have any timeouts, and they ended up losing the game. So here's a guy that had a Hall of Fame career, had a great NBA career, but what he's most known for is a timeout, the one mishap he had in college. Here's another guy. He's a, he's a local guy for us, but Mark Sanchez, what is he known for? What kind of fumble? The butt fumble, right? And I'm not saying he had a Hall of Fame career, but at the same time, he did okay for himself. But if you Google Mark Sanchez's name, What's funny about it is it comes up, it says, Mark Sanchez, butt fumble. Butt fumble. He did so many good things for the Jets, right? Taking them to the AFC Conference title game, all of that stuff, but one fumble against the Patriots where they returned it for a touchdown. Now, he can't get out of that name being called Mark Sanchez, the one known for the butt fumble. And so when we look at doubting Thomas, I want us to look at a passage, and let's go back to John 11. John 11, verse 5 and 8, and this, I want us to get a real good understanding of who Thomas was and what he did so that we can dispel that. Not that you still can't call him that, but understand truly who he was aside from this one mishap that we have in John 20. So John 11, verse 5, it says this. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he went, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? And if you look back into to chapter 10, of course, you know that they wanted to stone Jesus. They ran him out of town because he was making himself equal with the father. And so the Pharisees didn't, didn't want to hear that, and they called him a blasphemer. They threw stones at him. They ran him out of town, and now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going right back. I'm going right back where they just tried to kill me, right? And they're concerned. They're concerned. Why are you going right back? Why are you going right back? But then jump down to verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So he's saying, we're going back. Going back where they just tried to kill me. So here's Thomas, verse 16. So Thomas, called twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You see the boldness of Thomas? Thomas is saying, let's follow Jesus. Thomas is not doubting right now. Thomas says, Jesus' life on the line, that means we're his followers, our life is on the line. Let's go. He musters up the truth to put their, put their life on the line because Jesus is willing to put his life on the line. So they thought. And he's saying, let's go die with Jesus if he's going to go to a place where they're going to kill him. Right? And so when we look at Thomas, it's important for us to understand we can't just categorize him by this one mishap. Yeah, it, it was big, but here's a guy that was bold about following Christ, that was a leader amongst his peers. 
And that helps us understand this passage a little bit more. And for all of us, what we need to understand is what I said a little bit ago is, look, it's inevitable. We are going to have doubts in our life. We're going to have situations come up in our Christian life where we say, I don't know about this one. I don't know about this one. But it's not about the doubt that we initially have. It's how we respond to it. And how we are to respond to it is to make sure that we're always in action. We're always seeking to pursue Christ. We're not just resting in our doubt, but we're moving forward to say, I'm not going to sit here and just be content with being doubtful. I'm going to see where the truth lies in here. And that's point number one this evening is we need to seek truth to avoid resting in doubt. Seek truth to avoid resting in doubt. Doubting is, is being in limbo, okay? Doubting is, is not being, you know, not being an unbeliever here, not being uh, in disbelief, and also not being bought in, not being a full believer here. We're sort of in limbo. We haven't picked a side. We're Switzerland at this point in time, right? And so we're, we're doubting, we're thinking through it, and we're not really pursuing anything. We're stuck in a standstill. And so there's no action at all when we doubt. And at the end of the day, when we think about doubt, truth be told, with doubt, it's much easier to doubt than pursue truth. It's much easier to doubt than pursue truth. You see, doubt doesn't require any work. Doubt, you can say, hey, I, I, I don't know about that one. I'm a little unsure about that. And you can rest in that. And that requires you to do nothing than, other than say, I'm not for it, I'm not against it, but I'm sitting in the middle. You see, when we pursue truth, then that requires work. And so understanding that we are not to remain in doubt because we always need to be pursuing truth. We always need to be pursuing Christ. We always need to be pursuing what is his will for our life. This is a situation you can see with many non-Christians. You can tell the Christian or the non-Christian that's truly wanting to know what it means to be saved versus the one that's just a skeptic. Because if you share the gospel and you talk to someone about Christ, then you know there's those that will just throw out, you know, aimless excuses or, or reasons why they don't trust God or reasons why they don't believe or reasons why the church is bad. All of those that have been answered before, they throw those out and then they don't really do any research about it. They don't really dig deeper to know what is the truth. But then when you have somebody that's willing to answer questions or willing to research or willing to study or willing to continue to meet with you, you know you have somebody that's more ready to pursue truth. They're not just resting in their doubt, but they're continuing to pursue and seek truth to avoid resting in doubt. And what we need to understand also is that you and I are not too far from Thomas here. You and I are not too far from doubting. It, it happens all throughout our life. Many of you have doubted multiple times today. Somebody has told you something and maybe you didn't really like what they told you and you're saying, ah, I don't know about that one. I'm not too sure. I'm not against you. I'm not for it either, but I'll just kind of sit here in the middle. It's just something that we do. We become skeptical about what's being told and what's in front of us. And we need to see our connection with Thomas. And sometimes this happens to us with godly people. God places people in our life that speak truth to us, that try to align us with God's will and align us with God's word, and we become skeptical. We say, ah, I don't know. And a lot of times we say, I don't know, because it doesn't align with what we want in this life. It doesn't align with our desires, our passions, our, our desire to, to, to do the things that we want to do in life. It doesn't align with that. So we sit in the middle. But you see, Thomas here had godly people. 
He had the disciples with him. He, he had been through battles with the disciples. He had knew, known the disciples. He knew them to be people that followed Christ. But because Thomas didn't get it exactly how he wanted it, it wasn't laid out exactly on a platter the way he wanted it to, he sat back and doubted. And many of you have people in your life, you have brothers in your life that have laid the truth out to you. They have tried to keep you on a straight and narrow path. They have tried to hold you accountable, but you say, uh, I don't know. Maybe you just don't want me to do that. Maybe that's not God's word. That's just what, what you think it is. Right? But what I'm saying is we need to get to that point where we're always seeking to make sure the tr- what truth is matches what Scripture tells us. Because there is good doubt and there is bad doubt. There's a difference. There's good doubt and there's bad doubt. Bad doubt is that digging your heels in and saying, you know what, I'm going to stand here with my arms folded and I'm just not going to do anything because I don't like either side of it. Right? Bad doubt is doubting people because something doesn't go your way. Something doesn't go your way, and now you doubt the situation, you doubt people. Think about Thomas in this situation, right? God has revealed to the other disciples. He wasn't there. God has revealed to them something that is truth that he wasn't a part of. How often does that happen with all of us? God sometimes puts people around us in our life. He's revealed truth to them. He's revealed something through them, through the Spirit, and he's using them to reveal it to you, but we then dig our heels in, and we then begin to doubt because it's not what we want to hear. It doesn't align with what we want to do in life. And so doubting people when things don't go your way. You can also doubt the severity of sin. Right? We, we, we don't take God serious. We continue to test God. We doubt that he's serious about sin. We doubt that he's going to punish sin. We doubt that he's going to hold us accountable. So we continue to, to push the limit with God. Yeah, he's given us discipline for our sin before, but we, 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 we doubt it and we try it again to make sure that uh, maybe, maybe, maybe God wasn't that serious about it. Maybe he wasn't that mad about it. Let me continue in this line of sin. You could doubt God's love for you. Doubt God's love for you because he's taken something away from you that you feel like you rightly deserve. You feel like you should have in this life. You feel like it's a good thing for you to have it in this life. God has removed this from your life so that you can Spend more time with him so that you can grow in a closer relationship with him, but you doubt his love for you because it wasn't something that you thought should be pulled away. But then there's good doubting. There's good doubts. And again, not doubting, not resting in doubts, but there's good doubts and good skepticism. And some of those good doubts are not taking everything on face value, but like the good Berean does, is examine the scripture. examine the scripture to make sure whatever's being told, whatever's being recommended, whatever's being shared to them lines up with God's word. Good doubt. Acts 17, 11. Examining the scriptures, talks about the Bereans daily to see if these things were so. There's a lot of people out there trying to act like Christ or or make things seem like they're they're Christian friendly or, or they're what the Bible says, but at the end of the day, we need to examine things. We need to be skeptical about more things to make sure it lines up with God's word. Doubting, good doubting is doubting but listening to godly counsel with humility, not stubbornness. Right? You, you might have a thought, but then going into godly counsel, going into your brothers that have been placed around you saying, you know what, I may not be right. 
And that's hard for us to do sometimes because we go in and we ask for counsel, but we already have our mind made up. We're just waiting to hear somebody that's aligned with us so we can say, yep, that, that's the counsel that I'm listening to because he's already thinking what I'm thinking. Instead of saying, hey, I might be wrong. Let me be humble about this. Proverbs 19:20. listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Doubting, but then pursuing counsel and being humble enough to say, I may not be right. Good doubting. Another good version of doubting is quickly working to resolve it, even without all the answers. All right, you can, you can doubt, but again, you're not resting in this doubt. Where there, there's work to be done to quickly resolve this doubt that you have, to quickly get answers. But, oh, by the way, getting back on track of God's purpose and God's mission for our life. Paul talks about that in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul has that, that thought of, look, I don't have time to, to, to think about the past. I don't have time to worry about stuff that's behind me. I got a job to do. I got a task to do. And I got to press on towards godliness, press on towards Christ. And if we look at our passage, we don't know exactly what Thomas did right after. He said he will never believe. But what we can see is eight days later, he was still in the same mindset. He was still in the same mindset, right? He comes back to the, 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 the home that they're in, and he's still not believing. And so here's eight days, a Sunday to Sunday. They're counting that, the Sundays as well. Sunday to Sunday that he's in the same mindset. And just think about that, if that's you, right? You've gone a whole week not moving the needle at all on your doubt. You're resting in your doubt, and you think he's being productive for Christ. Probably not, because he's resting in his doubt. He's done nothing to pursue Christ. He's done nothing to pursue clarity. He's done nothing to pursue answers to his doubt. So let's see what that, that says back in our passage. Eight days later, verse 26 says this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, I love how they put that, although the doors were locked, we've heard that before because they came in verse 19, he says, although the doors were locked, guess what Jesus did? He got in. <laughs> I don't care about a locked door. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in. There's a miracle for itself. How many of you have walked through a locked door? Nobody, right? This is Jesus we're talking about. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put, your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Guys, look what Jesus just did there. Look what Jesus just did. Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't there a week before, but then he comes in the room and he answers Thomas's doubts line by line. Look at it. Thomas says this in verse 25. Unless I see his hands, the mark on mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails. What does Jesus say? Put your finger here and see my hands. Thomas says, I, I, I need to place my hand into his side. What does Jesus say? Put your hand and place it in my side. What does Thomas end with? 
I will never believe if this stuff doesn't happen. If I don't see this for myself, I will never believe. What does Jesus tell them? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe. What does that tell us? Jesus knows exactly what his doubts are. Jesus knows everything that he's thinking, everything that he's doubting, everything that's going through his mind. Jesus was not there, but he knows exactly what he's doubting about. Everything. And then he says, believe. Believe in what? Believe that he is resurrected. Believe that he is who he said he was. He said he was going to come back to them again for a little while. Jesus is back again for a little while. This makes him God. This makes him different from any other religious little g God out there. There's no other God in other religions that have defeated death, that has risen from the grave. You look at all the other religions out there, their God is dead. He's dead. But Jesus is God. He is the one true God. He's telling Thomas, I'm here. Look at me. Now believe. Believe that I have resurrected. Believe that I have defeated death. Right? He, he gave him the evidence he was looking for. Every doubt that Thomas had, every line that he just spoke without Jesus there, Jesus answered that for him. You might be thinking, well, I mean, if Jesus came and answered my doubts line by line, I would believe. If I saw Jesus in the flesh and he answered every concern I had, then maybe I would believe too. But on the contrary, Jesus says much different. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, I cannot send the helper. I cannot send the helper to come to you. But if I go away, then I will send him. Jesus says, no, it's not about me being there in person. It's more advantageous for you to have the Spirit working within you than for me to be there in person. And so that dispels any of those thoughts that we can have of saying, man, well, they had Jesus. Well, if Jesus was in the flesh, I would believe too. But just think about the doubts that they might have had. Jesus is saying, this Spirit that I'm going to give you, it's going to be better than having me here on earth. I mean, think about the doubts that they had. They, they, they don't get an opportunity to see the Spirit working. They, they're not sitting 2,000 years later to look back and see testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of the Spirit working in other people's life and in your own life. They don't get to see that. They just have to have faith that this Spirit that he's speaking of will indwell within them, and it will be better than having Jesus in person. So they have many doubts as well. They're not free of doubts. We have to understand that the Spirit is what Jesus has given us, and he says it's more advantageous to have the Spirit. And so while you may not get Jesus in the flesh answering all of your doubts or your questions or your concern, Jesus has given us more than enough through the Spirit, and we just need to believe the evidence that he's given us. And that's point number two this evening is believe the evidence that God has provided you. Believe the evidence that God has provided you. God has specifically provided you with evidence in your life that he is who he said he is, that he is who the Bible says he is. He's given you evidence, evidence that, that's, that, that's, that's custom made for you. Whatever doubts that you're having, Jesus knows those doubts that you're having, and he's willing to reveal himself to you. He's willing to answer those doubts. We just need to find them and seek them. 
Because oftentimes we, we seek the things that we want to find about Christ. We seek the things that we want Christianity to be. We seek the things that help our faith out that, or we feel like can help our faith out instead of focusing on seeking what God has placed in front of us already. Already. Last week I got an opportunity to go to one of those escape rooms. And, I mean, that is a, a, a cash cow if you ask me. They don't do anything. Charge like 45 bucks to go in there and be confused, and then you leave. I mean, that's great. And I mean, they're booked sun up to sun down. Smart people. Um, Anyway, I did one of those escape rooms, and what was interesting about that is that there's clues all over the place. And there's clues that that lead you to escape the room. They're there, no doubt about it. There's people that have done it before you, and they give you clues time and time again, every step of the way in order to lead you out of the room. And so normally you follow those clues and they lead you out the room. And if you get enough right, then you escape the room and you, you, you beat the whatever, the game. Um, but the, the clues are there. And God has given us evidence as well in this life. He's given us evidence to believe who he is. He's given us evidence to uh, overcome those doubts that you're having in your life about what God has placed in front of you. He's given you clues. He's given you evidence in front of you. It's just a matter of, are you seeking it? And are you seeking evidence that, it, that it's God? God's evidence, not evidence that you would like to see. Because he's given us evidence to make sure that we can get through this life, to get through any trial that we have. And if you're a non-Christian, to, real, to be able to believe, to believe who he said he is. Psalm 103, 14 tells us, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are dust. And so it's not a sin to doubt. If you have some skepticism, if you have some doubt, if you have some concern about whatever God has placed in front of you, whatever that mission is, whatever that task is, it's not a sin to to, to doubt that initially. The sin comes where it's how we respond to it, how we respond to that. And it's inevitable we're going we're to have those doubts. And God doesn't get upset with it. I mean, look throughout the Scripture. There were doubts all throughout the Old Testament. Right, you look at Moses. Moses had plenty of doubts as he was wandering through the wilderness, doubting, why, God, why are we doing this? Why can't we go back to Egypt? Well, these people aren't listening. All of those. Right? You think about Jeremiah. He had doubts about him being able to shut down Israel, essentially. He's, he's too young. He's doubting. Right, you look at David all throughout the Psalms. Like he, he's questioning God. He's, he's asking God, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why, why am I failing this way? Why am I facing this? But one thing that was the same about all three of them is they didn't rest in that doubt. They may have had that skepticism. They may have had that concern. They may have had that doubt. But then they pursued Christ. They pursued what God was leading them to do. God's not happy when we rest in our doubts. God's not happy when we say, I, I, I don't trust what you've placed in front of me. I want to try it my way. That's where doubt turns into sin. We can't rest in our doubts. We need to continue to pursue evidence, continue to pursue what God has placed in front of us. What evidence do we have, Kellen? Well, the first evidence that we have is in the Word of God. We got the full canon of Scripture right here in our hands that we get to read, that we get to see how God worked all throughout history. From the wilderness, 
all the way up to the church age. God is working. God's kingdom is continuing to be advanced. God's word is evidence. The testimonies of the disciples, the testimonies of other believers in your life within our church, God's working. Every time we hear a baptismal testimony, God's at work. Those, that's the evidence that God's plan is still on track. God's plan is still going full speed ahead as it has been the whole time. What's, up, what's more evidence? Your growth in Christ. Your growth in Christ and disconnectedness from the world. Right? That, that, that time in your life where you start to become the weird person because you care more about Christ than the world, that's evidence. That's evidence that you're going on the right path because God says that we are not to be friends of the world. We are to be in the world, but not be of the world, right? That's evidence. Seeing Christ's hand in everything, that's evidence. When you start to look at things and say, yeah, praise God for that. The fact that I got food on the table tonight, praise God for that. The fact that I got a home to live in, praise God for that. The fact that I got a family, praise God for that. The fact that I got electricity, praise God. A car, praise God. A job, praise God. You start to see God's hand in everything in your life. That's evidence that he's working in your life. You start to approach trials differently. When you have trials in your life, you don't run from them. You don't say, this shouldn't happen to me. You say, no, God's teaching me something here. This is what God does. He brings trials. He tests us, tests the genuineness of our faith to shape us, to mold us, to be more like him. You start to realize that God is, 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 is testing you sometimes by the very prayers that you ask for. You say, God, give me a closer relationship with you. So he removes something out of your life that might sting and hurt a little bit, but you asked him to give you a closer relationship. So he did that. But you may doubt because it wasn't how you thought it would be. You would say, hey, move this and I get it. No, God knows you better. So God said, I'm going to remove this because I want a closer relationship with you. That's what you asked for. You start to realize he answers prayers that way too. And that leads us, once we start to see the evidence, that should lead us to confess just like Thomas did. My Lord, my God. My Lord, my God. Love that response from Thomas. It it, it was immediate. Right? God answered the doubts that he had. And and we don't know, but it doesn't give us any evidence that Thomas said, all right, let me put my No, right away, right away, immediately, he goes from being a skeptic to my Lord, my God. You are who you said you are, right? And it brings this whole chapter, it brings this whole book into full circle because at the beginning of the book, John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, and excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And so you have, from a divine perspective, saying that at the beginning, and now we get all the way to chapter 20, where we have from a humanly perspective, professing the same thing. Full circle. And then in verse 29, God's speaking to us. He's speaking to you and me. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. That's us. He's saying, blessed. Right? There, there's a special blessing for those that have not seen me in person, but yet they have so much faith that they believe who I am. There's a special blessing for us. 
And he tells us that. Hebrews 11, he talks about those that had faith before Jesus came, right? The hall of faith. He lists out all of those people that trusted, that had faith in who the Messiah that was to come. And then in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation for your souls. Right? You, you haven't seen him, but you love him. Right? Those are the ones that are post the cross. Right? God's saying there's a special blessing for those that believe. Special blessing if we haven't seen him. That's good news for you and I. Then he rounds out the book in verse 30 and 31 as we get back to our passage says this in verse 30, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One of the uh, biggest time consumers for me uh, years ago was ESPN. One of the biggest time savers for me today is ESPN. And the reason there was a shift is because I would watch the same episodes over and over and over again. And I don't know why. It was a time waster. But then ESPN is a gift for me now because I don't have time to necessarily watch a whole game. But in anywhere from 40 to 60 seconds, they give me the, the highlights of the game. They give me the big plays that made the difference, and they tell me the outcome uh, that I need to know. Saves me a lot of time. I don't even need to watch the game half of the time because ESPN tells me what I need to hear. They give me the highlights, the big things to let me know what happened in that game and to let me, be, let me also know who won, what was the final outcome. Well, what John is saying here is the purpose of this book, look, there was a lot more that actually happened when Jesus was in person with the disciples. There was a lot more miracles that actually happened. There's a lot more things that, were going, that was going on. But what this book does, what the Gospel of John does for us, is it gives us the highlights of his ministry. It gives us everything we need to know in order to have the final outcome. Enough for us to believe everything about Jesus. The Gospel of John does that for us. And that's the point number three this evening is we need to know that God has provided everything needed to believe. God has provided everything needed to believe. The Gospel of John is just not a story, a biography about Jesus. Right? It, 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 it gives us everything that we need to know in order to believe. That's why this book is great for a non-Christian. It's great because it, it spells out the, 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 um, excuse me, the signs that, that Jesus had throughout his ministry. Right? It gives the miracles. It tells us why we should believe. It uses believe more than any other gospel. It has, it has belief in there. It has the signs. He wrote this book so that we have everything that we can believe. And he breaks it down for us in three different areas. He says he gives us signs, right? I just mentioned that. But the miracles are huge. We can't downplay the miracles. Right? There's 35 different miracles throughout all of the gospels. John gives us seven unique miracles that we don't see in any other Gospels. He makes a big deal about the miracles because guess what? There ain't anybody else out there doing miracles of this magnitude. 
right? Jesus is, is, is heal, healing paralytic, he, paralytics. He's healing the sick. He's bringing people back from the dead. He's walking on waters. He's calming the seas. He's walking through doors, all of this stuff. And everybody back then knew it, and they saw it. And there was one or two things you could do with the miracles. You either said, yep, he's God, or like the Pharisees did most often, they said he was demonically possessed. That's it. That's all you could say. There was really no in-between. And so we need to look at the signs and understand that is huge. And we can't downplay that, the miracles. He also talks about being the son of God, right, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 14, 32, 33, we see this when Jesus is walking on water. He's walking on water, and Peter tries to come after him, and he drops in because he loses faith, right? His mind goes somewhere else. He drops in. Jesus walks on water and enters the boat, and then the wind is ceased. And at that point, the disciples respond and say, you are truly the Son of God, truly the Son of God. Right, the, the promised Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament all the way up to the New Testament. That, that, that's you. This is you. You are here. You are the Son of God. And then believing in him, you may have eternal life. It's the most important question. Most important question that anybody walking the face of this earth will have. What happens after this life? Jesus tells us, you can have eternal life with me. John 6.40 says this, says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when you're a non-Christian and you realize this, you realize that Jesus Christ is Lord and is God, you can have eternal life. When you are a Christian and you profess, just like Thomas did, that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God, you can get through any trial, you can get through any, any doubt that you have when you realize he is the one that's in control, the one that created everything. He is Lord of our life, he is the boss of our life, and he is sovereign in control over all things, no matter what this world has for you. You know, my favorite time in, in football games is when it gets down to the wire it's fourth and one, and they're either on the goal line or it's just fourth and one, and they're going for it. And I love it when those two teams line up, and you know on both sides, it's like it's a quarterback sneak, no doubt about it. They bring all the big uglies in. They get into this big mosh pit, and the quarterback gets right under center, and he gets two people right behind him. The linebackers come up. The linemen are right there, and it's strength versus strength, power versus power. Who's going to win? That's all it is. You know what's coming. I, I, I get geeked out by that. I'm like, ooh, what's about to happen right now? But it made me think about, doubt made me think about this. Let's say you were the coach and you had a quarterback. You just called to play fourth and one, we're going for it. We've been running the ball all night long, and we're going to quarterback sneak right up the middle and run it down the throat. And what if your quarterback got up on the center and got ready to take the snap, and then he backed up, and then he ran to you and said, I'm a little doubtful. There's, there's defenders out there, and they look mean. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get it. Well, I imagine, frustrated and all, you'd have a couple questions. You'd probably ask him, what did you expect? Right? Their job is to stop you. What did you expect? And your doubting 
It's wasting time. You're going to cost us a penalty, and we're not even going to be able to go for this. And you'd probably even ask him, do, do you not trust me? Do you not trust your teammates that they're strong enough to overpower the defenders? You have a lot of questions for your quarterback that is doubting in the moment. When I think about this from a Christian standpoint, I think our heavenly coach would have the same doubts or have the same questions about our own doubts. Right? When, when you doubt so much that you just freeze up and, and you don't move and you rest in your doubt, God would probably ask you, what, what did you expect? I told you there was going to be opposition. I told you this wasn't going to be easy. Right? And he wouldn't focus on a penalty, but he would say, your, dis- your, your doubting is going to eventually lead to you being disobedient. And he probably asked the same question that the coach asked, that you would ask. Do you not trust me? Do you not trust the people that I've placed around you? You see, doubting and resting in doubt can get us in trouble. But rest assured that you will face doubt. Doubt's going to come knocking at your door probably sometime this week if it's not already at your door now. And what I want us to remember is there's a response that we need to have as Christians, as believers of Christ, when doubt arises. And that is we need to seek the truth first. We need to seek Christ first. We need to seek how to get answers to whatever doubt that we have and not just rest in it. Because God promises to reveal truth to us. God promises to reveal himself to us if we seek him. And so we need to pursue Christ. We need to pursue truth and keep moving forward. And know that God has either already given you the answers. It's right in front of you. You just need to look for the evidence. Or God will, he's promised to be faithful and he will provide you with those answers so that you can continue to overcome the doubt that you have in your life. And if you continue to do that, then you will overcome doubt after doubt after doubt as you pursue Christ. And you will be able to pursue Christ all the way into his heavenly kingdom. There's no doubt about that. Let's pray. God, thank you for being so gracious and merciful to us that even when we have those moments of uncertainty or skepticism or, or even doubt about what you've placed in front of us, you don't condemn us right then and there. But you are willing, as long as we are seeking you and pursuing you, you will reveal that truth to us to allow us to overcome whatever doubt that we're going, to, going through. And if we are not believers, Lord, you've given us enough evidence to know that you are Lord, you are God, and that we can put our faith and trust in you and have eternal life. Lord, I just pray that we would pursue you more, that we wouldn't rest in doubt. We wouldn't just stand still and, and ultimately it lead to disobedience, that, but we would pursue you in all that we do. Lord, help us to do that today better than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen.